all sides fancy. All right. Welcome to episode 11 of the Without Equal podcast. I'm your host, Rob McQueen. I'm joined today by my co-host, Chris Perry. Uh, Steve Cargill, unfortunately, was stuck on a plane coming back from Alaska, so he's not going to make it. Uh, and then our guest today is Colonel Retired Scott Miller. Scott was the former Army attache to Greece, as well as the defense attache to Bosnia. Uh, and we're really looking forward to a conversation. So, Scott, I'm going to turn it over to you, give a little introduction about yourself, uh, and then we'll dive into this part of our perspective on Ukraine. Uh, thanks, thanks, Rob. Um, really, uh, just a 30-year Army veteran uh, with a number of different assignments, both infantry, aviation, special operations, and then uh, as a diplomat in uh, Cyprus, Bosnia, and in Greece. Um, and I, you know, I have had quite a bit of uh, experience working with, uh, either working with or just dealing with the Russians. Um, not that I'm a Russian expert by any stretch. There's far more experienced guys out there, but I have learned a few things about. Uh, at the strategic level, what what could be kind of those things to consider and, and uh, to measure? Um, you know, the Ukraine, of course, is on everybody's radar right now, and there's there's it's both simple and complicated. There are so many things that are really really complicated, but really when you boil it down to, you know, I think a lot of the problems are, are more more straightforward. It doesn't make them easy to solve. It just means that there, you know, there's a lot of chaff that goes in with the wheat. So I I don't know. Um, you know, if you would like me to start with just how we got to where we're at or, or um, you know, jump in right there or kind of uh, current events. You know, let's I, I really want to hear your perspective on on how we got here, because I, I think there is a wide variety of what brought us to this point, especially if you look along political lines in the U.S. So I, I would love kind of because what you said is really important. Uh, it's both simple and complicated. So yeah, so give us a quick one over of of your perspective on how we got here, and then definitely let's jump into current events. You know, and, and for me, people can say, well, there's a, a million reasons why you know uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine, and, and there's lots of factors. Obviously, uh, Putin is obviously at the center of all this. Uh, my personal belief is that Putin wanted wants to establish his legacy. He's amassed all the wealth that he could possibly do anything with, and I think. He's been in power so long that establishing his legacy is where is what his primary driver for doing this was. Uh, I think Putin does not have enough people or any people that basically are ready to tell him that, uh, you know, that he's got rose colored glasses on and that he is not able to he's any of his ideas. He probably considers to be the best and only good ideas. And therefore, he's the strong you know, czar that can make things happen and, and drive the whole train and he can envision it. Therefore, he can make it happen. And there's nobody. I doubt there's few people that are challenging him within his realm once he's committed his mind up to doing something. So I think that is really kind of cultivated his decision to go to the Ukraine. I think the other pieces of that, he's used many of his techniques from the KGB on disinformation and propaganda and other things to try and mobilize the sentiment that he needs. He controls the media in Russia, and he has for so many years that, that uh, you know, he believes that everyone pretty much will toe the line, whatever whatever line he wants to put out there. Uh, I think the truth is, though, that many Russians are very skeptical as to what the real truth is with Vladimir Putin. But uh, how we got here, I, I kind of actually blame I blame the West in many regards to how we got here. Um, I think when you look at Crimea, when you look at, start with Georgia, 
when you look at our response to Georgia and the Crimea, you know, the Europeans basically rolled over for Putin. Um, and, uh, and people may not want to hear that, but I think that's totally true. I mean, you can't continue to buy Russian energy and, and just say, well, we didn't like what they did, but we need their energy worse than we need to be to have the moral high ground. I've been lectured to by enough Europeans for for U.S. policy to to kind of look at them with a very clear eye and, and note their hypocrisy when they when they look at their own interests and don't, uh, you know, they can wag their moral fingers at us at the same time they uh, they fail to do what they need to do in order to uphold any kind of moral shred of moral dignity. Um, so they they've cultivated they've we, and we're not they're not alone. I mean, the U.S. could have taken a much harder line with Putin. I think this idea of trying to westernize Russia uh, has gone about as well as it has with trying to westernize China. I mean, they've you know been able to take what they can from, it. and I think you know when you look at the enrichment of the you know the elite in Russia, I think that's actually one of Putin's weaknesses. Uh, people re- recognize this, and I think that's an area where uh, that's a that's probably an area ripe for for exploitation. Um, to my personal belief, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but anyways, I think that Putin has uh, was never hemmed in after Georgia, was never hemmed in after uh, Donbass and his his bad actions in the Crimea. He was never really severely penalized for those things, and so he doesn't. He, he never. They're they're not going to do anything. And he thought that he could do this thing in Ukraine fast. And I think he probably had rose-colored glasses on when he went into the Ukraine. He probably didn't think Zelensky was the strong leader that, you know, the czar Putin is. And uh, he turned out to – Zelensky, in my view, has, has been essential to keep the, uh, keep the, the spirit in the Ukraine up. Without, without Zelensky making the uh, – the right moves. I mean, he didn't leave Kiev. He showed pictures of him being out on the streets. You know, he, he didn't take the bid, you know, Hey, we'll, we'll be a government in exile. He knew that that would be the end. So, um, you know, he may give his life for his country and if he does it, he'll be a credit in history. Um, and I hope, I hope it doesn't come to that, but, uh, you know, I have tremendous, tremendous respect for what the Ukrainian the base, the common Ukrainian is doing and, and willing to suffer for their for their independence, and I think their example has has been a big reason why so many Americans and Europeans have decided that they're going to join the ranks and figure out where, how they can help Ukraine, whether it's in whether it's completely you know with veterans from the U.S. military going to find a spot in their veteran you know their uh, volunteer brigade or or whether money or whatever else. I mean. I, and I, I find myself in that same kind of boat. I'm actually, you know, interested in what what can I do, and what more than just you know clap on the sidelines. So, yeah, I I think that's a key part too is is looking at Zelensky. We we've hit on Zelensky quite a bit in, in our conversations, especially since being a leadership focused organization. Uh, what he's done in this time frame, I think, is is Scott to echo your point. One is amazing, and history is going to show it that way. Uh, regardless of of the negative messaging that's coming around on on prior to this conflict, you know the, the kind of heavy-handed government, so to speak. But I, I also think, had it not been for his, yeah, I think he's careful. Good. Yeah, I was going to say also, and had it not been for him stepping forward, there's no way that that Europe, specifically the countries that are on the fence, looking at Germany, 
uh, would have come forward had it not been for Zelensky's leadership. If he'd gone in exile, there's no way that Germany takes a harder line stance against Russia, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I think he was the key to the Europeans taking the position that they did because they knew that their own political fortune would not stand the public opinion if they had not rallied behind Zelensky and, and the government of Ukraine. If they if he would have folded like a you know like a deck of cards, you know the Europeans would have just you know shrugged their shoulders and said, oh well, I guess Putin got his way. We'll just get our you know we'll keep working on our economy and moving forward with Russian gas and and. So I think the more I mean he he invigorated not only his people but but basically you know nations worldwide to support their cause and you know Putin no matter what he says he's not going to end up on the good side of this he regardless of what the outcome is you know he's going to be seen as a villain he there's just no other way around it I mean he he will be I think that one of the things we could do is is basically say, you know what, these sanctions that we're talking about, they're not temporary. These sanctions are going to be in place while Putin's in power. And we ought to be public about that. You know, and and to me, that's the key. The key is to to undermine Putin's legitimacy within his if he's no longer the caretaker of the Rus- Russian future and seen as someone that's destroying their future, whether it's through a nuclear holocaust or through their own destruction of their economy. You know, the only way he comes out of there is by being drug out by, by Russians, by his feet. That's, you know, that's the only way that. Yeah, I I agree. Let's, Scott, let's, let's, let's roll back to you because I think, I, I think that's a good transition point to talk about kind of how things can go next and, and what we can do. And so, Let's look at um, kind of kind of the key part here. Europe rolled over, that moved down. We've kind of got them, that set us up for where we're at. We now have the invasion of Crimea, and now we've transitioned to, like, we're proceeding with, you know, heavy sanctions and moving forward. So, because I, I think you hit on a few things that are a little bit beyond what we are doing right now. So, so let's kind of look at uh, the sanctions that are going right now and a part that you said there, which is the enrichment of the elite. Because this is one of those parts where had it not been for this kind of resurgence of Russian oligarchy, right, this resurgence of, of Russian wealth outside of uh, kind of the, the political elite and the government, I don't think that the sanctions would have the effect that, that they're intended to have at all. So I, I, I kind of wonder on that point of that enrichment of the elite, are, is Germany seizing the yachts in, in, of, of a lot of these oligarchs? Is this kind of like hard crackdown on Putin's inner circle or even outer circle going to make a bigger impact than, than maybe it wouldn't have before? I, I think it's how it's used is the most important piece. I don't think the actual acts are all that, you know, detrimental to Putin's uh, empire. I think the way they should be played is this is what the money that you've been giving to the Russian government as a taxpayer and as a Russian citizen for the last 20 years. This is where it's ended up. You know, with every Russian yacht, we ought to, there ought to be an expose and make sure that it's in Russian language and figure out every means of possible to penetrate their, their internet, their airwaves. They ought to be rolled out. And, and you know, it, it has to be true, but it also can, you can emphasize certain points in that truth to make it hit the Russian people. To me, the key of this is the Russian people. You know, Putin is going to continue to pound away at the Ukraine as long as his people leave him in power. And as long and if people live in fear, fear is a, a really powerful multiplier. But 
That works both ways. I mean, numbers matter. If you've got millions of Russians that say, you know what, enough of this, it's it's over. It's a game over for them. So, you know, the only the only threat is and the only fear, I guess, would be that Putin says, well, if it's over for me, it's over for everybody else and hits the button. Um, so, I, I, you know, that's the only, you know, I, I won't wag my finger at anybody for, for choosing because we're playing ultimately at the highest stakes poker ever, ever played, uh, you know, depending on what Vladimir Putin really you know, how of a megal- how much of a megalomaniac and not a survivalist he is. If he, if he wants to survive, you know, then maybe he won't be thinking nuclear. Maybe he just likes to wet, he just likes to talk about it and bark about it and make people scared, but you know, he's not serious. It also depends on how I, you know, I'm not an expert on the inner circles of the, the Russian nuclear launch system and, and how many, how many possible interventions there are within the Russian, within the Russian circles to stop, you know, that cycle from starting. But anyways, um, you know, I think that uh, he he's going to pound away at the Ukraine. I, I think the key for him is to use the sanctions. The sanctions should be used by the West <clears throat> to highlight just how bad these bad actors have been. I mean, I noticed on Google they showed Vladimir Putin's billion-dollar estate. To me, that would be should be getting lots and lots of play in as many different circles as possible you know, the opulence and just how much money has been wasted that and, you know, all those things. And actually, to be honest, making a mockery of him is also useful. You know, all his bare shirted kind of, if we turn that bare shirted, you know, wrestling the tiger or whatever he does, you know, that makes him look like he's this powerful guy, you know, I think we should make a mockery of it and spin it that way in Russia. You know, this is not a, this is not a serious person. This is just a, He's a guy that's just basically trying to feed you these little trinkets. He's a he's a World Wrestling Federation, you know, star that's trying to come off the top rope for effect. Um, you know, so if we make him into this, that would bring a that would bring new new meaning to the term the people's elbow. I think just for a for a common entertainment purpose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we don't want to say the atomic elbow. Uh, no. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting because, yeah, because cause the messaging piece you just talked about and you hear everything from Hollywood kind of trying to jump on the Ukraine bandwagon. And this is where I, I struggle with what you just said, which I, I think is spot on. But we also have this kind of um, issue with hypocrisy in our end because we would basically have our own version of opulence and super rich and and over the top people trying to push and call out Putin for the exact same thing, which would be easily undermined. I mean, I think I saw Stephen Colbert today talking about he's willing to pay $15 gas because he drives a Tesla. So there's this disconnect on on both sides that makes it kind of challenging for us, especially in the West, who's kind of been, we've kind of been the picture of opulence for a very long time in that thought process and from their perspective. I mean, I agree. Stephen Colbert is certainly not the guy to present the argument that, uh, you know, about opulence and uh, we have to package it, the message correctly. You're absolutely right. I mean, we can't be the hypocrites saying we're so rich and and everything in the United States. And yet, you know, you, you know, you're not allowed to have your rich people when we have Bill Gates and Elon Musk and others that are, you know, beyond the wealth of the average person. However, uh, I think there is an argument for how you got your wealth, too. And so, you know, matching the message with, you know, how that was happening, you know, free enterprise is a powerful, you know, 
liberty and freedom is is to be honest that's why putin went into the ukraine i think part of it is his biggest threat is having a successful you know uh, former soviet republic that's large like the ukraine becoming successful and westernized i mean that's the biggest threat to his his centralized version of of power in russia you know what can happen so i i think that if we marry the corruption of the russian oligarchs and putin with a message about you know the reason why the u.s has been successful is because of freedom and because of the ability for people to make choices and you know uh the, the ability for meritocracy to work. I think people that will resonate, meritocracy resonates with everybody. You know, the idea of it, whether or not they feel like it's achievable. Meritocracy is very powerful. And, uh, you know, we saw that in Bosnia. People want that regardless of however broken down they are, where they feel like corruption and, and the, the elite have all the power. They still want meritocracy. They want it for their kids. That's why they're willing to send them abroad and brain drain and all the other things that happen in countries like Bosnia and in Russia, because there's just no opportunity because it's been choked off. So, uh, I, you know, I think we have to package the message. And I think but I think it does go after Putin's legitimacy. And I think that's where we have to strike. Why do you think we're so far behind on the messaging piece? Because we're yeah, what are we 13 days into this now, 13 or 14 days into this invasion? We've known. I mean, this has been a growing issue to this level, even before the Olympics. I think most people uh, who've studied history at all or understand Russia could see this coming. I mean, I think we've cultivated, I think, I think we've cultivated uh, people that, that looking for sound bites. We don't have, I, I'm not sure that we have enough strategic thinkers that are trying to, and, and the strategic thinkers we have, I'm not sure that they get the, you know, get the, get the time to present their arguments so the decisions can be made. Everybody's worried about, you know, polls and, and what the latest, you know, trend is and in and, and the news media. And it's not any, there's nobody dishing out big thoughts for the American people to kind of look at and look at a 10 year or 20 year plan. And how are we going to do nobody 10 years ago? Nobody was looking at Putin saying, how are we going to, what's our 10 year plan to, to basically wreck his legitimacy and get rid of this bad actor that is a threat to world peace. Nobody's, nobody was talking about that. There might have been people who said, yeah, really, but, but nobody's doing it. That's the part that kills me, though, Scott, is, is, I mean, you and I in Bosnia in 2014, we watched uh, when Putin moved into Crimea, we watched European command and everybody go, what the hell is happening? And you would think after that point, somebody would have looked at this and be like, hey, maybe this is going to be an issue. In the, maybe we could piece off seven or eight people to work together on a damn plan on this. And, and so... I think it's still frustrating to me, and I know it's got to be to you, to look at this and, and, and realize that I, even on the messaging piece, something that is so simple, why are we so far behind? Because we don't want to do it. We don't want to do the hard work. We want everything to fix itself. And, and we don't have politicians, quite honestly, that are showing an amount of leadership. I mean, the, the one thing I can say for, for autocrats like Putin and Xi is that they get to stick around long enough to at least see some of their ideas go through. But the problem is... You know, our politicians are only worried about their next election. They're, nobody's trying to create this. You know, John F. Kennedy and Reagan were probably two of the better presidents about trying to create a vision for, for the future. Maybe Obama, too, to a certain degree. But, you know, I, I don't know that we have the right leadership trying to look at the strategic issues our nation is facing and, and packaging it and, 
and saying, you know what, I'm not going to finish this, but I'm going to lay the foundation, let someone else finish it. You know, that's how we got to work. And we're not, I don't think we're doing that. I think we were worried about, you know, everybody trying to steal credit so that they can gain in the polls and try and reinforce their short-term gains. We're always focused on short-term gains. Nobody's really taking a strong look at long-term, I don't think. I always wonder, uh, and I always worry that maybe it's like, like you said, that strategic vision and those strategic thinkers. I always wonder uh, if maybe we've hit a point where we've gone past the strategic, like kind of, you know, like the complex and wicked problem sets, Chris, like that, that kind of transition. And I, I almost wonder if we've gone from like, we've hit that wicked problem set where everything is so intertwined and so complicated that I, I think a lot of people aren't just capable of looking at it at that level. And so we have a lot of people that are focusing on what they can do, which is for lack of a better term, that 50 meter target and just taking care of themselves. Right. Just hunkering down and, and kind of looking out for themselves. And you see, like to Scott's point, one with leadership of, you know, the older leaders that providing a goal for a future America and what it would be in sacrificing to make a greater America. A lot of the themes you saw in older um, newsreels and films, et cetera. You know, part of that is one is up and out, focusing on our relation with the rest of the world. And the other part of it is uh you could tell if someone was really focused on that because they'd be worried about shoring up some of this infighting that we're doing in America amongst ourselves because a nation's not going to be able to successfully uh, defend itself or focus on its future if it's so busy fighting and everybody picking each other, cutting each other's legs out from underneath them, which we've seen a lot you know, in the media. I mean, I think this discussion that we're having focuses a lot about messaging and narratives and how you manage those. Um, you know, we've talked in previous podcasts about the kind of the road to war or how did Putin uh, deceive the Russian people so badly to launch this. And it's because he could control the narrative, right? Um, and as long as everything is contained within Russia, he controls that state entity. So he can put whatever kind of misinformation in his people's heads to justify whatever it is that he wants to do. And I think we see that with a lot of the dictator um entities around the world that control what they can feed their people, they start thinking that they literally are, you know, like a deity that they can just say what the truth is. Problem is, as soon as he steps outside the borders of Russia into the real world, as it were, where everybody else can see what he's doing. And now via news media, social media, internet, everyone's connected. So very quickly, that starts unraveling outside of Russia. So everybody saw that. And that's where, you know, the messaging needs to be formulated on our part. And to Scott's point, the Russian people being the only one that can really pull Putin from power or do something within that country. You know, one, uh, yeah, I'm not super familiar on the state security apparatus. I know it's pretty robust. I mean, that would take a lot of doing. But the other part is getting that message to them. Because you've seen in the last few days, he has actively sought to cut off all resources for outside information to his people, the internet, the, you know, social media, um, even some of the texting, some of the cell phone service in some areas, just trying to prevent that outside external real world narrative from getting back to his people. Because we've seen, you know, with the Russian prisoners that were taken in Ukraine and they throw them on TV and whether it's propaganda or not, it's effective. Um, you know, the guy's saying they had no idea they were on a training mission and their sergeant told them to hop in the back of their armored vehicle. And next thing they know, they're hopping out of the Ukraine shooting at people or dropping bombs or whatever. And that's the thing. We've seen so much artillery fire and, uh, you know, a lot of the um, 
distance and indirect fire weaponry, it's a lot easier to do that on the ground and not really even know what your targets are, right? You don't necessarily, you're not necessarily face to face with them. Um, so we saw a lot of that early on. And then I think some of that narrative is starting to unravel even amongst the Soviet forces or the Russian forces. So part of it, the difficulty of it, you know, with, with messaging, you have the sender, the receiver, the messaging, the actual message and the media through which it's transmitted and trying to get to the Russian people, even if we craft a really good narrative, a really good message to get to them, the difficulty is going to be getting that message to them en masse. And I think that's going to be a problem set that I hope somebody's working on because how do you crack that nut? That's always been, you know, from a military perspective, operations inside of China or inside of Russia were, you know, the, the, the culmination of the most difficult thing that we could possibly be doing because of the amount of control the state has over it. So trying to figure out how we can get the message of what's going on in the real world and how flawed Putin's plans and Putin himself really are getting that message to the people. So that's, it's going to be a huge problem and I hope somebody has an idea for it. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think Chris, on top of that too, what I want to hit on is, you know, we, when you and I have seen this in disaster relief a ton, which is that kind of new Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So, so back in the day, you could remove communication. You could take that t- state TV away or, or just, you know, the 13 channels and, and three fuzzy white ones that you got. You could turn that off and nobody would really notice. But we've seen this like in the middle of a natural disaster. Priority one is getting that cell phone up. I mean, it's not water. It's not food. It's, it's really it, it's shocking to me how that cell phone is priority number one. And so I wonder if kind of Putin's Cold War era tactics or this this old school thought process of, Hey, if I can't control the narrative, if I'm losing it to this like larger information dominant space that exists, if that old school tactic of removing that cell phone or removing that access to access to information is not going to have a differing effect than it would have had in the eighties. Um, I think that's, that's a complex piece because I don't having seen it, you know, 20 times where, where people have lost that sense of communication in what is, you know, in, in the middle of a disaster, that becomes a focal point and that becomes a priority. So I wonder if that's going to happen in Russia where people are searching for that information and maybe creating that gap that will allow us to, to get the truth in there and get the information in there and, and degrade Putin's narrative. Well, I think, I think one of the things to consider possibly is the fact that the Russian soldiers are in disbelief themselves and they're, they're connected to their families. So the word is going to trickle out from the, from the Russian forces themselves in Russian by firsthand knowledge Two back to families saying this is this is a bunch of BS what we're doing. And the Ukrainians probably have an extremely well connected network into Russia, at least into the neighboring parts of Russia that they can leverage as well. That's getting that message out. So I think I think my honest feeling is Putin's going to try and control the narrative, but he's going to lose control of the narrative. He's almost time is not on his side at all, whether it's in the messaging side or the fighting side. Time is not on Putin's. If he could have won quickly, maybe he could have pulled it off, but he's in a quagmire. And I think every day that goes by it, it's causing, it's going to cost him both on the messaging side, but also on the tactical side and operational side. Yeah. The, the operational side, I think, because transitioning from that, that conversation about communication and the messaging piece, the operational side has been a huge shock to me. And we've talked about this in, in previous episodes. We started to go into this. Ukraine has far outperformed my expectation. Um, and I think that's, that in itself is going to have that kind of strategic impact that's going to allow this to go longer because I don't know what the shelf life is for for this conflict for Putin before he hits kind of that terminal point. 
And on, you know, again, on the tactical side, I think it's a wake up call for everyone involved because, you know, what was depending on who you spoke to the second or third most powerful, largest army in the world uh, is now showing some of its capabilities and it's under impressing at best. Part of it is, you know, maintenance. Part of it is quality of materials. Part of it is the knowledge and effort of the people who are running all of that. Um, and it's been surprising for everyone, I think, uh, who's been afraid of the Soviets, Russians for so long that, um, you know, seeing like flat tires and lack of fuel and lack of food and, and things not working and how quickly their top of the line aircraft are getting shot down um, by, you know, some soldiers out in the field with some surface to air missiles. I mean, it's it's been a little bit game changing. I think some people are going to have to go back to the drawing boards as they start to plan for future conventional engagements, um, seeing what capabilities are. Well, it's interesting. I read an article today that talked about the fact that some of these weapon systems were rolled out to be all these all that in a bag of chips to the Russian people, and then finding out that it's not true. And a lot of the money ended up again with the oligarchs. They put all this money that was supposedly to make this you know, this fearsome war machine to make the Russian powerful again. And it was all, it's all paper tiger because they've wasted a lot of that money and it's gone into people's pockets. Again, that's part of the narrative that can be, I think, successfully leveraged. You know, they did that. The oligarchs did this. Putin did this. You know, that the T-90 tank isn't, isn't this terror. The, the Armada is not a terror. The, you know, there's none of these things are working. And I think, also, it can be said about their leadership style, and I, I have some experience with this kind of very centralized, risk-averse leadership, which is also costing them a lot of problems. And I think that's why, particularly tactically and operationally, they're they're stuck because they can't they can't get the initiative, and the Ukrainians are taking the initiative because they can, and because they have no choice but to to basically allow Ukrainians to forces to to move in and do the things that they can do when the opportunities happen. And the Russians aren't, aren't able to do that. So I think there's some really interesting lessons on leadership, lessons in, you know, the style of fighting that's been sponsored, uh, continued to be sponsored by, you know, Russian, uh, the Russian military and, and other militaries that follow that same top down kind of pattern. It doesn't work. Yeah. And, and I think we've seen, too, that they have not changed their battle strategies much since definitely a cold war and really world war two of when they make up their mind, they're going to do something. They just keep throwing people at the problem um, until they accomplish their goal. And I mean, they're, they're blessed if you want to call it that with the enormous amount of people to throw at a problem, but the way that they're doing it, you know, is, uh, is surprising, you know, when their military machinery comes to a halt, but I don't know if it's ego pride, you know, they're not changing their battle plan. They're just continuing to push harder and they're just going to lose more people and lose the narrative uh, that way as well. Yeah, I, th I think that's the key. I mean, the morale, you know, as they, Napoleon said, morale mor uh, morale to the physical is three is to one. And I think that that's proven itself very, very clearly in this conflict. And morale is low in Russia, in the Russian forces. And so it's it's maybe it's multiplying where it's, you know, if you had neutral morale and they had high morale, it's three is to one. Maybe it's nine to one right now with, Russian morale being pretty low because of, you know, they're stuck in a quagmire, they're getting picked off, the leadership's poor, they're, they don't have supply, they don't have food, they, you know, they don't feel right about what they're doing. I mean, all, all those things are, are playing out to, to the detriment. And it's like I said, was saying before, time is not on, on Putin's side.
Right. Well, and I, I read an interesting article today too, saying I think it was the number two uh, at the Russian, like the, their uh, chiefs of staff, I think was killed. Uh, which is this is a this is a really interesting piece. the The way that the intercept came across is because uh, basically the number two was killed, and it's uh, I can't remember uh, the guy's name, but uh, I have to look it up here in a second. But he was killed, and the way it was actually confirmed was because the the, the Russian soldier on the ground made a phone call over a local cell phone because they're you know high-end classified security system doesn't or communication system doesn't work because they destroyed all the cell phone towers and their system relies on the cell phone towers. And so they're making a phone call that was intercepted over a local phone and a local SIM card that they picked up in order to reach back to FSB. And which again shows that kind of broken piece. I really hope that as, as we look at uh, because the US government, US Army specifically has been transitioning to large scale combat operations or LISCO. And I think everyone that's been writing that doctrine needs to take a look at this conflict and, and really take a look at the the role for special operations in LISCO because the way that this resistance piece from the Ukrainians is showing is is having a much larger effect than what I've seen in our current doctrine as what it sells for for capabilities for a resistance in LISCO. I think it's really important too. people talk about numbers and how many Ukrainian are, are in the armed forces. But, you know, the point is that anyone with a rifle in Ukraine that's willing to lay down their life is a big threat to a Russian force. Each Ukrainian, if there's I don't know what the population of Ukraine is, but it's in the millions. Right. So that means that if every Ukrainian that's of fighting age, say it's just say it's a million people. If each one of them kills two people, there's no way the Russians can do it. You know, they, they simply can't do it. You know, and not to say that 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 ratio is always going to work, but bottom line is with that kind of mentality, Russia is going to lose this thing. And I think that's at least as long as and back to kind of the leadership style of Zelensky, as long as Zelensky stays in the game, the the Ukrainians have proven to to want to stick it out and, and fight for their independence. And I think I think that's a real problem for uh, Putin. I don't I don't see it. I don't see a way clear except he's got to try and get rid of Zelensky. Right. And then there's there's also the trickle down effects of, you know, any time in, in economy or anything else, when you pull from one area, it's going to have effects, so even with our sanctions and the oil and it, like it's having other unintended consequences in the economy and the world economy, not just the US. But when you talk about that, as he's having to throw more and more people and equipment, et cetera, at the problem, he's having to pull that from somewhere. So what does that mean? Who's seeing that? And then what is the effect on Russia as a whole, or the the people who have always felt that Russia is a superior force, you know, or their national pride. What kind of hit is their national pride going to take from this? So all the other effects that come out of this, the longer this drags on, the more they have to reposition forces. The more hopefully that so, at least some of these sanctions or embargoes work. What other effects is that going to have on Russia as a whole? It'll be interesting to see. But I think there's also a psychological effect on maybe it's on the more cosmopolitan Russians, but, you know, the, the Russians that see all the U.S. companies that maybe they were feeling like, oh, I'm becoming westernized. I've got all this, you know, I've got a cell phone. I've got, you know, iPhone. I've got all this. I, I drink my Starbucks, you know, whatever, whatever they have in their minds as being, you know, kind of cool. All that stuff's going away. You know, all that stuff's leaving. And it's like, why is the world treating us all like a pariah? Maybe there's more to it. And there was an article I read today that was talking about this this uh she was a executive producer for rt that quit and uh she quit because basically you know she basically can't couldn't deal with the you know what what was going on with with the war and and the fact that ukraine was trying to be subjugated 
against the totalitarian regime that she basically didn't didn't really agree with. And, you know, other people are going to see that. And she was basically saying if people wanted to find out the truth, even in Russia, you can do it. And so we just got to maybe we got to amplify those connections. Maybe we got to reinforce those connections. But also it can't it has to be done in a way that's not seen as pro, like U.S. propaganda either. You know, the, the Russians will be looking for that. So it has to be as factual and as relevant and as, you know, and as clear black and white as we can possibly make it. And we we can't afford, I don't think, to to lose the trust. I mean, they already don't trust us. We can't make it. We can't feed them uh, feed them stuff that's simply not true. And then then we look even it hurts our position rather than helps it. Absolutely. So I, I kind of want to, because we've hit on messaging really well. I think the the tactical piece and, and where it's on the ground, I think we, we've hit pretty well. I, I want to kind of go back to, um, like, let's talk about Putin and his out. And does he have an out? And this is the part where we, as we push, as we push further and, and we've talked about messaging, let's say we increase sanctions, we drive the messaging form, we hit those right piece and we further push Putin into a corner, like, I think from this conversation, Scott, what, what I'm pulling is how do we give Putin an out that puts him in a cage and doesn't let this happen again, but at the same time keeps him from being that really wounded, dangerous animal in a corner with his finger on a button? Because if this is about his legacy and his legacy right now looks like a failed tyrant with a broken military and you know just opulent lifestyle – would he rather wipe the slate clean, so to speak, than have that be the legacy going forward? And and that's a question I can't answer. I, I've i tried to give some thought to that, and I, I don't see an out for him right now. I really do. I, I think that he either he either takes the Ukraine and gets the concessions that, you know, I, I read today that they published the four concessions they want is recognition of the two breakaway republics, the recognition of the Crimea, um, no, no EU, no NATO written into the Ukrainian constitution and uh, there was one other condition but you know I, i'm uh i don't see i i actually don't want to see the ukrainians give up on that i don't think they i don't think we have the right to ask the ukrainians to subjugate themselves to russia and, and deny their their kids the future I, I i wouldn't support it i don't think it's right uh we lose the moral high ground if we try and push that agenda i think um uh, so you know, if, if that is a bare minimum where Putin can declare a victory, I, I don't see us, I don't see the Ukrainians giving that to him. Maybe they will. But I, I if I was in Zelensky's shoes, I'm feeling empowered right now. Yeah, we're taking a beating, but we're also giving them, giving some really bad body shots to, uh, to the bad guys. You know, he's being, the world is supporting the Ukraine. They're, they're in a, an, more of an empowered position, even though they're, you know, they're faced with a very menacing force that's that's encircling them. I get that. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that are in nations that are completely behind Ukraine and, and Zelensky. So I'm not sure that he's going to make those concessions because then, you know, I, I don't know. He's also looking at what, well, I've, you know, he, he's also got kind of his back against the wall to a certain degree. You know, he's got to try and get his country through this. Uh, if he caves into Russia, then I, I don't think that's going to fare well for him, uh, you know. And so he may be seen it that way, too. Is Putin going to let – you know, you try and uh, play nice with Russia and, and declare a ceasefire. How does he not know that in the next year or so he's going to get the, you know, the radioactive poisoning that so many others have uh, enjoyed? So, I mean, 
he 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 doesn't have a lot of great options either. So he he might as well stay on the side of right. Um, so I, I think that there there really isn't a lot of good off ramps for Putin at this point. Without if he looks if he withdraws from the Ukraine, he looks weak domestically. Um, you know, maybe he can hide behind a state apparatus. Maybe that's more of a a plausible survival kind of a episode for him. Um, if he continues to hammer in, hammer at the Ukrainians and, uh, you know, eventually gets lots of Russians killed, but eventually maybe takes the Ukraine, you know, maybe he can survive that way. But I think the, hopefully the world will continue to condemn him, um, and leave him come out in the woodshed forever. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I think that either, you know, three options are either if he quits, it doesn't play well for him domestically. If he beats Ukraine in submission and takes a lot of punishment, Russians are used to that. That's probably his most viable course of action right now. Um, and he just he's going to lose a lot of Russians and it's going to be really ugly for the next, you know, two or three months. And eventually, you know, they'll Kiev will fall and, and maybe he'll capture Zelensky and, you know, and that. And then he'll declare his little victory and it'll be this pariah state that exists in Europe that we have to deal with. Um, but, you know, my hope is the Ukrainians hold out and continue to punish the Russians and they get stuck into a quagmire and they just can't can't get themselves out of it. Um, and then he's going to be forth to withdrawal like they did in Afghanistan. Um, and if that happens again, that that's going to be another that's going to be a, a huge body shot to his his legacy and his his image in Russia um, and everything that he's tried to cultivate. So, um, you know, and then the last thing is I think, you know, I don't think I God, I hope the nuclear option is not really high on his list, even though he's, he's wolfing about it. Um, but I think also that could not play, that might not play well either. I mean, even if state security guys don't want to go into a nuclear war, they've got kids too, right? I mean, the state security guys that he's trusting, if they're faced with, oh, we're going to get into a nuclear exchange with the United States, I, I, I don't think that that's a wise move. My kids are never going to have a future. You know, so only the most loyal and most crazy would, would not try and look for their own out. Their own out would be, let's get rid of this, this meathead. That's what the West wants. And that's a big question, too, is the, like, I don't know enough about the Russian state security apparatus if there are currently chinks, who would replace Putin? Who would have the ability to remove him if that's even possible? I don't I don't know. But I mean, that's a huge piece of it, right? Because that's what helps perpetuate his legacy, his influence, his ability to stay in power. I don't know how robust that is. Everything I've ever learned or read or anything about Russia leads me to believe it's pretty secure. And, uh, you know, his position is, is pretty difficult to be uh, to be messed with. But I mean, if it gets pushed enough to a point, enough dissatisfaction or something like trying to go nuclear, I mean, there might be a critical point where that state security apparatus fails on him. I mean, we could only hope. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a great question. I mean, but, you know, I'm sure the czar thought that he had a pretty impeccable state security apparatus as well. Right. Yeah, it's been done before, right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, but it, it, it's not certainly not going to be easy and it's going to be certainly a high risk endeavor for sure. I, the, I, I listened to an interview the other day. Um, it was a U.S. Uh, retired major general, I believe. Uh, but he had a kind of different thought process than, than Scott Chris. We've both gone down and kind of what I've heard more from, from 
my circle, but really his thought process was that there's a north-south running river in Ukraine and that Russia actually really didn't want anything to the west of that, that one. So it kind of creates that possibility of a, you know, an eastern Ukraine that becomes Russia and then that western Ukraine that can kind of be that neutral and balanced state. And he sees this conflict as, I mean, Scott, as you just said too, in the end, Russia is going to take Ukraine. It may be incredibly painful. It may be over the top, but the, that that kind of wheel and that war machine is going to keep churning. As broken as we've we've seen it to be, it's going to keep going. And eventually, we, none of us really think Putin is going to give up on it. But his thought process was that, you know, maybe it's time. It just let's let's make that split. Let's look at it that way. I don't really know enough about it. I have a hard time believing that that Putin would kind of settle for that half to the east and he doesn't want anything further to the west. Um, to kind of like round out this thought process and, and add another perspective to it. What do you guys think about that? I think, I think the Ukrainians, I think, I think Putin would settle for that now after he's taken the punishment. I think he'd settle for that, but, but he can't afford to leave the, I think Kiev is, you know, Zelensky has garnered a whole bunch of, you know, quite a bit of power. And I, I don't actually, I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion that the Russians will take the Ukraine. I think it's quite possible this ends up in a more or less a quagmire. Maybe Kiev falls. That doesn't mean it's over. You know, that doesn't mean that the resistance doesn't continue to attrit Russian forces. I mean, look at Afghanistan. They never they never beat Afghanistan. You know, they took a pounding. They're going to continue to bleed Russian soldiers for the next five years. How long are the people going to take that? You know, so that's it's not it wasn't this, you know, they're going to welcome me with open arms uh, as we come in, as we drive into the Ukraine and liberate them from the Nazis. It wasn't the, it didn't fit the narrative that he wanted it to fit. Um, and it, it won't ever fit that anymore. There's no way that that's going to be the narrative that's that's digested. So I and I don't think Zelensky, I, I actually, to be honest, I would love for Zelensky to start looking at, you know what, let's try and figure out ways that we start hurting him in Crimea. I mean, that may sound like a crazy idea, but I actually think that that if you can start hurting him in places where he thought are secure, that actually has a tenfold effect. You know, and, and so, if yeah, you may be surrounded, but if you got Ukrainians actually poking the bear in the Crimea, that's going to invigorate people. That's going to send a message to Moscow that nobody's given up on this. Yeah, and for, forcing him to reposition his forces or, you know, uh, secure rear areas. I mean, it's going to mess up his his plans as well. So, yeah, and he doesn't have the flexibility. They don't have the 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 strategic or operational flexibility in their logistics. They don't have it in their command structure. They don't have it in communication. They don't have that flexibility. It hurts. It's going to hurt him double to triple what it would hurt the United States in, in regards to what you know getting hit in our, our rear lines. Uh, I think it's and I it, talk about morale booster. Can you imagine how that would play in the Ukraine? Well, sending a message too of what's yet to come, right? Like that's really pointing like. I think he's got a, Zelensky has to try and figure out ways that he can, even if it's limited, he has to try and go on the offensive where he can and how he can. And if it's with special operations, with his, if with partisans, if it's with whatever, that's what he needs to be doing. He's doing a great job in the media and I think he needs to keep that up, but uh at operational and, and tactical level, I think he needs to find those places he can go on the offensive. And they're, I think they're doing a good job with trying to hammer using drones or whatever to, to hit the, the column of things that are stalled. And that, I'm sure that's that's really causing a big pain in the ass for the Russian forces. But I, I'm more worried about 
his attacks from uh, the Russian attacks from the south. They seem to be showing a little bit more progress. And, uh, you know, so I think turning the tables there might be really, really helpful. Huge. That'd be huge. Yeah. Do we know as far as Zelensky goes? Because, you know, I mean, he was a you know a comedian, a, a, an actor, a, a persona, uh, even prior to him being elected. But as far as his chain of succession or chain of command goes, like he's been so crucial, so critical in inspiring the Ukrainian you know, national sentiment and so good with his addressing, you know, the Western media and everything that he's needed. He's such a crucial piece. If he goes down, who takes his place and can that person do what Zelensky has done? I don't know if he's, you know, you always try and you know, train yourself out of a job. Obviously, that's a really important job, but I don't know who he's picked or how he's addressing the possibility of if something happens to him, who's going to take over. I think the smartest move for him would be is to try and have his wife uh, not in the same place as him. And she would still she'd be able to maybe if you know, I don't know how much charisma she has, but she could she could wear the mantle for a little while and keep keep things going. If Zelensky was taken out, I don't know if there's any other personalities that can quite fill the void that Zelensky can. But, you know, uh, his widow, you know, God forbid Zelensky gets killed or captured. Uh, she would be the only, I think, in a position where people, the sympathy would be so great from a both personal and from a, you know, position level that I think that would be the move that I would have to consider, at least in the short term. I don't know if there's anybody, you know, personality wise that can fill the role that he's got. Right. And because that's the other part of it, too, is I imagine Zelensky is not doing all of the strategic repositioning of force. You know, he's got his generals underneath him that are helping with the fight that know everything that's going on, but those people may not have, yeah, the persona, the, the personality to get out and represent Ukraine to the West, even though they may be the ones who are actually driving some of the battlefield effects that are going on. So yeah, it's a- that's a great point. because Obviously some good generalship that's going on out there. I mean, so there, there, you're right in that, in that observation, I think is that maybe there is somebody there that, that has that capacity and, and it might be true, but certainly Zelensky's doing a great job with, with the cards that he's got. <laughs> no. Man, this kind of goes down to, uh, I wish there was an easy answer and there just isn't. And there's so many complexities. And and, I, and Scott, I love this conversation because we've taken it down a path of, you know, looking at how can Zelensky go on the, on the offensive, which is a critical piece. Who replaces him? Uh, even in my mind, I, I didn't think about his wife as, as being that figurehead, but I think she's the perfect piece for it. I was trying to think of maybe they start building up somebody else to kind of take that place and, and get their name out there and start to build that kind of legacy. But his, his widow, I think is, is the one that would have to do it in this time frame. Yeah. And also there's a, I don't know, uh, there was a, there was a Ukrainian politician um, that was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, that was brought on some trumped up charges or something. If I'm not, I can't remember her name, but she, she seemed to be a pretty powerful kind of a force within Ukrainian politics. And, you know, maybe it was, would be kind of a person that would be uh, able to fill in there as well. I, I don't know where she stands in all this. Hopefully she's standing right behind Zelensky, at least with uh, the, her political support. I think the Ukrainians are pretty well, are pretty unified, very unified in this particular case. I, I think that's surprising Putin uh, as well, the, their ability to sustain this unification. And I think it's essential. If they don't, if they don't do it, then it, it game's over. So... Uh, but I think there's a lot of strength there. And I, I, I'm not, I guess maybe I'm the eternal optimist. I'm not 
prepared to think that Russia will, without in a matter of time, will just wear down the Ukrainians. And it could easily go into a quagmire where they control critical points, but they never really control much anything else besides those critical points. And they're taking a lot of casualties and, you know, it just turns into a, it turns into hell for them. And, uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's where it ends up. I think that may be the most likely course of action. So with that being the most likely, and I, I think, I think you're right. The, the initial thought process of Russia being fully vetted and guaranteed to win this, that's the Ukrainians have shown anything, but that being a, a certainty. So if that's the most likely and they keep dragging and maybe this turns into a quagmire, Ukraine holds what they can and, and Russia holds some key points. What do you think is the most dangerous? I think we can all agree the nuclear option is, is the most dangerous for the entire world. But outside of that nuclear option, what do you think is the most dangerous thing that, that Putin could potentially do with this? For me, anything that builds Putin's power base anymore is dangerous for future security. Um, you know, anything that, that, backs Putin's legacy. I, I, I have, it's, I think it's dangerous because then, you know, he may have, he may go back and lick his wounds, but he, he, you know, he still said, well, I, I pulled it off, you know? And again, we're, we're not dealing with necessarily a completely rational actor. Yeah. He's wily, but he's been in power so long that he starts believing everything that he tells himself. So, you know, you don't know how crazy the guys actually become. You know, power as a way of corrupting and destroying rational actors, right? I mean, so how far down that road has Putin gone? And if he's got nobody that's keeping him in check, which I don't, I doubt there is, you know, he he's like, well, okay, I, I, I pulled off the Ukraine. So next, you know, Poland's going to pay for all their help. I'm going to make them pay or Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Those are easy pickings. I'll take care of those. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think anything that, that reinforces Putin's power is for me the most dangerous course of action short of the nuclear option. Nuclear option, of course, is the worst, worst case scenario. But, uh, you know, that, that nuclear option, if it looks like it's going that way, it also can be the, the catalyst to have him. But I, I wouldn't want to play poker with those stakes at, at all. You know, those are not decisions that I, I'd want on any, any, you know, leader of the United States or in the free world, you know, in the EU trying to have to make a decision on, do we do we start going up the nuclear escalation ladder because we have to, um, you know, and hope cross our fingers that somebody takes Putin out because the Russians don't want to have a, a nuclear event? That's 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 higher stakes poker than I'm interested in. Huh, what a time to be alive! I don't I don't even know what else to say about it. Like we've we've hit a point where it's kind of bananas. And, and I, I think the case could be made that, you know, you look at the height of the cold war and you look at what's going on now, we may be in a more dangerous position now uh, than we were at the height of the cold war. I mean, just with how rapidly this is escalating. I think, I think that's the case. I mean, at least Khrushchev was, was a fairly rational actor, you know? Um, but I, I'm not sure that, you know, I, I'm not sure that Putin is completely the rational actor. He's an opera. He's, you know, he's a, He's been a bad actor for a long time. He's he's probably become more or less a megalomaniac, and you know I'm not sure that he's as rational as people want him to want to believe he is. I, I'd like to believe he's rational. I'm not sure that, but you know he's also crossed the Rubicon. I mean he he went into the Ukraine. Now he's got to deliver something, and his and I do believe he's he the main reason he's doing it is about his legacy. Um, so you know, 
I don't know. I don't know where that goes, but I think there's some great lessons here with regard to war is not going away for one thing, you know, and, and we need to start looking at our, our long-term strategies probably a little more seriously with regard to what, what we do either in foreign policy, economically, militarily, strategic, all those things we have to start taking more serious and pragmatic looks. You know, I think that's, it's also very important to understand the China quit question with regard to how things go in the Ukraine. I think fortunately the, the world opinion and unified around how it's unified around Ukraine has caused China to take pause, perhaps. That's my hope anyways. I kind of felt like if it was if it had been me where Putin and Xi were, were looking at the opportunity, said, so, well, if we go together, the US can't do anything about it. Um, but you know, fortunately that hasn't played out that way. Um, but there there's a lot of autocrats out there. When you look at Turkey, you look at you look at Algeria, there there's there's some power fairly powerful regionally autocrats that are probably eyeballing this thing saying, you know. Is this my opportunity? Let's see how this plays out. You know, is military strength enough? Can we just do what we want and we'll just take the economic punishment for the short term, but get long term gains? So, but I, I bet you they're looking at Russian equipment a lot more differently. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that's a big one. Is I think those orders are going through the floor, especially the stuff that they're. Yeah, especially the stuff that they're waiting for delivery on that's already been getting shot down pretty regularly. I think they might be reconsidering some of that. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I definitely, and to play kind of a little bit of conspiracy, I wonder if Z and Putin uh, around the Olympics and that kind of you know meeting that they had where they came out and said, we are unequivocally each other's partners no matter what. I wonder if there was a conversation behind the closed door, like, hey, if you go, we'll go, and then nobody can do anything. And I wonder if Z just kind of took a step back, was like, let's see what happens. Um, and like a more like playing that playing that game. Yeah, I mean, really, they, you know, they may have been waiting for the U.S. to decisively commit forces to Europe and then figured that would free them up to do something. And, and that hasn't happened. So they can't. Right. I, I, I really believe the, the, the most dangerous piece in this is other than nuclear option, which, you know, megalomaniac and Putin on the nuclear triggers is terrifying. But the most dangerous option to me is is what happens with China following this uh this conflict that's the most dangerous thing to me and, and what is china going to learn from us and then how how we respond and how the west responds to this is going to dictate how china moves forward from here in my personal opinion yeah i, I mean i think that's that's exactly right it's tied up actually to this the way i was basically looking at it was you know anything that empowers putin will also send a signal to china that you know you're clear to do what what you need to do um so you know, I think so far the West has played this pretty well. I'd like to see, I think the Germans need to, to up their sanctions. I, I get it. It's going to, it's going to hammer their economy, but you know what? You got to be on the side of right. And sorry, you shouldn't have been buying Russian oil for the last 10 years anyways. So, you know, sorry. Um, but sometimes you gotta, you gotta put your big person pants on and, and do the right thing. Well, and that's that that's that internal EU politics and a little bit of layover from uh, World War II like that. I think people forget that that is still there's still some there's still some feelings about that because I'm I mean, watching the EU's energy policy. 
that shifted immediately after Germany decommissioned their last nuclear power plant, all of a sudden their new green policy is like, well, we actually need nuclear. Sorry, Germany. We're going to shift that so we can actually retain the rest of ours. So there's that internal politics and that internal dynamic that I think people overlook looking at Europe as Europe's just Europe. Everyone's great. And they're like, no, there's still a lot of issues internal to that that I think a lot of us in the West don't see. Yeah, there, there's a huge amount of, of issues. And I, and I, to be honest, there's quite a bit of, you know, under, under, undercurrent of resentment towards Germany. And Germany can be a bit of a heavy handed kind of uh, autocrat within the, within the EU sometimes. Um, and, you know, I, I personally think that they need to, to stand up and do the right thing. Given weapons, that's a great move. Okay, Germany, bravo. But really where it hurts is when you cut all that money from going into Russia that really hurts. That's going to be a meaningful uh, impact. And I get it. It's March and it's maybe it's it's not going to help your economy. But, you know, you didn't make any strategic reserves. Well, why didn't you do that? You know, why did you make some of the choices? You want to be green? You want to be green and hug trees? OK, that's great. But, you know, really, you've been still buying money from a I mean, buying oil and natural gas from a menace. He's been a menace for 10 years. It's not a surprise. Yeah, this is definitely shaking up the world. Um, I kind of want to pass it around. We've we've gone down some really cool conversation points on this, and I, I kind of want to go around the chain. So, uh, Chris, we'll do any any comments or, or topics you want to hit on, or final words from you, Scott. Then we'll hand it over to you for anything you want to close out on this conversation or, or take us down another path if something's sitting on your mind. Uh, and then we'll just close it out from there. So, Chris, over to you, bud. Yeah, I just wanted to thank Scott for coming on. It's always awesome to. Uh, hear another person's perspective, somebody that has so much knowledge about, you know, uh, that area, what's been going on and, and your background as well gives you unique perspectives. Uh, I enjoy doing these and I enjoy every time we do it, I learn something or it gets me thinking in a different direction. So I just look forward to uh, continuing to do this again. I hope it, we're all talking about it in the past tense in the future very shortly. I hope this thing ends. Um, but the way things are going, I still think it's going to drag on for a while based on the things that we've talked about. But Thanks again, Scott. I really appreciate having you on. No, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I think the only thing I want to underscore, Rob, is is the and, and it reflects back also on our own situation within social media and information. And that's the necessity, the absolute necessity for our government to be to be honest in this day and age. I mean, we we it, it is tied directly to the legitimacy of our of our government. And if we can't you know, if, if we want to push out propaganda, whether it's propaganda going against Russia or whether it's propaganda, whether you're talking about another political party, we have to be honest with the people. As soon as people don't trust you as a government, you know, our institutions will start falling. And and so I think the information space is a really interesting point. And I hope I hope strategic leaders are really paying attention. You know, you have to be more you have to be straight. I think with America, with the American people, you got to be straight. I think the Russians really need are dying for a straight message about what the reality is. You know, I know it's going to take time. I know it's not going to be easy. I know all those things, but it doesn't mean that we don't figure out how to start pushing that ball up the hill. Um, and I think we need to do it because I think his his Putin's legitimacy completely unravels once all the you know once once all the facts are out there and people can kind of see it for themselves. That's it. Game over. Absolutely. 
Hey, thank you so much again, Scott, for coming on. This has been a great conversation. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of the Without Equal podcast. Uh, we're going to continue this series on Ukraine. We have a former German special forces operator that's going to jump on and talk to us from a European perspective uh, and some senior leaders from U.S. SOCOM. So we're going to continue to push down this perspective or this thought process and and gather that different perspectives on Ukraine. So thank you so much for joining in. We hope you join you join us for future episodes and remember to like and subscribe this video and uh, rate this podcast and help us kind of beat the algorithm and, and, and spread the word. So thank you so much uh, and cheers. Have a good one.